Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so, no one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown. Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The resignation of Secretary of Defense James Mattis has rattled Washington, thrown into a salad with the government shutdown over the wall, and you've got some screaming headlines about the chaos in Washington. With me is Uri Friedman. He writes about global affairs for the Atlantic. Thanks a lot for joining me. Great to be with you. Uh, first of all, let's talk about the James Mattis resignation. Uh, people have had a, you know, a night to, to process it. What are you thinking about um, James Mattis and his resignation letter and what it means for the Trump administration? I think it truly is remarkable uh, because other, you know, cabinet members have come and gone. Some have been fired. Some, like Nikki Haley, uh, have resigned. But this was the first time, I think, where we have seen a resignation based on a principled disagreement with the president. Now, if you read the letter, you know, it seems kind of mild. But if you actually pay attention to the fact that the defense secretary is saying, I disagree with the president on him disrespecting allies. I disagree with the president because he doesn't have a clear-eyed view of Russia and China as threats who are trying to remake the world so that it's safe for authoritarianism. I mean, that is pretty heavy stuff. Um, And I think what we are seeing right now is people in Washington, really Republicans and Democrats, uh, a lot of people very concerned because they feel that Mattis was kind of a check on some of the more uh, radical impulses of this president who really does not subscribe to the way that Republican and Democratic presidents for the le- really since the end of World War II have thought about U.S. foreign policy and its most basic elements. And so I think you're seeing a lot of concern about that because if Jim Mattis is leaving, that means he feels he no longer can influence a president. If he can no longer influence a president, that means Donald Trump is, you know, kind of Donald Trump unleashed right now on foreign policy. Well, the laundry list of things that James Mattis listed in his resignation letter, there are things that um, would be common among most foreign policy types. Um, and Donald Trump is going to have a hard time matching. Uh, he has a very hard time matching uh, the people around him with his point of view, even the people who he has now, who he just put in place as Secretary of State or National Security Advisory, Advisor, they probably have views that are closer to James Mattis's than they do to Donald Trump. And the next Secretary of Defense is probably going to have views that is closer to James Madison than, Mattis's than Donald Trump. Um, is there really a, a person who um, <laughs> fits the job description that Donald Trump wants in, in a spot like that or in any, any foreign policy office? Listen, on foreign policy, Donald Trump is sui generis. He is unique. There is no one quite like him, in, uh, certainly in the political establishment. So you are right that he will have a hard time whether he draws this from you know the military ranks or from Congress or retired generals. Um, he is going to have a hard time finding someone who really subscribes exactly to his views. But one thing I have noticed is that he does seem to have a preference these days of finding people who may not ideologically see eye to eye with him, but who are going to subsume that to the larger mission of carrying out the agenda of the president. So, for example, Mike Pompeo is someone, you know, I talked to a former chief of staff of his who was saying that, you know, you may remember in 2012, Mitt Romney was made fun of by Barack Obama by saying Russia is our number one geopolitical foe. Uh, it turns out he was kind of prescient with that. And um, the former chief of staff said that Mike Pompeo believed that as well, that Russia was our number one geopolitical foe. But if you notice, as Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo has not acted like that. He has kind of carried out Donald Trump's mission of trying to have better relations with Russia. You know, right now, UN Ambassador uh, Nikki Haley, who often disagreed publicly with the president, is leaving. And Heather Nauert has been the nominee to come in. She is literally speaks for the Trump administration as a State Department spokesperson. Uh, John Bolton, his, you know, if you had listened to him on Fox News back in the day, he, his nightmare scenario would have been a long, drawn-out uh, n- negotiations with North Korea over its 
nuclear program. He would not have wanted this at all. But Donald Trump wants this right now. He says he's fallen in love with Kim Jong-un and negotiations are going well. And you don't hear much from Mike, from John Bolton on that. So even though these people ideologically disagree with the president, they are not like the first crop of advisors like Rex Tillerson, H.R. McMaster, and Jim Mattis who are going to publicly stand up to the president or even privately do it in a way that kind of serves as a check to the president. They are more enablers of this president. Well, how do you put, you just had an interview with Nikki Haley in The Atlantic, and she articulated almost all the same thing, kind of things that James Mattis did, uh, you know, you know, wants to stand up to Russia, wants to um, do kind of the common foreign policy things, but she never really stood up to Donald Trump in the administration or, or submitted a bad resignation letter. But all these people are... Um, in theory, I mean, they're they're pushing back. They're they're not necessarily. Um, there's they're going to slow walk stuff as much as James Mattis does. Uh, some of them will. I mean, Nikki Haley kind of had an interesting technique, which was Jim Mattis often really disagreed uh, with uh, the president. And when, you know, on things like uh, Afghanistan, you know, he argued for keeping troops in Afghanistan. Now Donald Trump wants to pull them out. Same thing with Syria. Um, Nikki Haley had an interesting tactic of she spoke when she spoke. She spoke out in ways that often were very discordant with what the president said. So she talked a lot about human rights. Uh, she talked a lot about American values and being a leader in the world and standing up to Russia. But in in, in terms of carrying out the president's agenda, she also often did it just with her own style, but carried out the president's agenda. So, for example, the president wanted to move the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem. Uh, from Tel Aviv, she did it. She she didn't necessarily talk about it in ways that Donald Trump did, where he said, like, I don't care what anyone thinks. I'm doing this. It's a campaign promise. She didn't talk about it like that, but she carried out the president's agenda. I think that had to do in part with a distinction between Nikki Haley and, and Jim Mattis, which is that Nikki Haley is a politician who's 46 years old with a bright political future. Uh, Jim Mattis is a retired four-star general who's not looking to get into politics anytime soon, as far as we know. And I think Nikki Haley... Uh, found a way to both build her own political brand that had a different kind of worldview than Donald Trump's, uh, but didn't do it in a way that would necessarily uh, alienate, uh, you know, Donald Trump. Because Donald Trump is popular among, uh, you know, a segment of the Republican base is pretty substantial. And I think Nikki Haley may have future presidential ambitions and therefore didn't really try to both have her be associated with Donald Trump's agenda and also found a way to speak in a way that kind of built her own political brand. So that was a little bit of a different thing. She wasn't as much, I would say, of a constraint on Donald Trump's agenda as Jim Mattis was. I'm talking, talking with Uri Friedman from The uh, Atlantic, and we're discussing the resignation of James Mattis. Coming up in a few minutes, we'll be talking with film contributor Milos Stalik about the new film Vice, about Dick Cheney. Uh, I wanted to take this to its logical conclusion. So if you are appointing another Secretary of Defense, uh, do you go for another strong-willed general type, which Donald Trump has certainly shown an affinity for, or do you go for someone more along the lines of Nikki Haley or um, Senator Tom Cotton seems to be a name that's floating out there and might be more amenable to going along with the president? Uh, what, what do you see him doing? I don't think he goes with a model like Nikki Haley, where um, even though she may carry out uh, the president's agenda, she will publicly disagree uh, or, or sound different than the president. Um, and I don't think he, he goes with someone like Jim Mattis, who, like a former general who has a vision of America's role in the world that is very traditional. Um, you know, D Donald Trump uh, several months ago uh, did, did a interview with 60 Minutes where he said um, – Jim Mattis is kind of a Democrat. And I think what he meant by that is he sees the world the way Trump's critics see the world, but it's also the way many Republicans see the world, which is that we have alliances, we have a, a global role to play in the world. We need to be, uh, you know, we it's not just about the national interest. Uh, and that is something that I don't think, I think Donald Trump is really moving away from. You know, he said it throughout the campaign, but I think he's really finding his sea legs on foreign policy now. And he doesn't want someone who has that very conventional way of seeing the world. So someone like Tom Cotton in the Senate, you know, I don't know if it necessarily will be him, but that is someone who's a little more interesting of a model for Donald Trump because it is someone, Tom Cotton does have some conventional views, but he's also uh, you know, kind of a nationalist, you know, a sovereigntist who's kind of like don't mess with us kind of mentality about America's role in the world. And I think 
I think um, Donald Trump wants that. He wants someone who can be more transactional, who can be aggressive and can advocate aggressive policies when the U.S. is directly threatened, uh, but not someone who is going to say we need to be in Syria because the U.S. needs to, you know, um, maintain a balance in the Middle East and a presence in the Middle East because we are the world leader. You know, he doesn't want someone like that. And so I think someone who is more willing to be more transactional in foreign policy to respond to direct threats to the homeland, uh, but not someone who is going to advocate a very robust presence throughout the world is someone who he will look for. I think he will also look for someone who is willing to kind of uh, break the mold uh, and question long-held, decades-old assumptions of U.S. foreign policy. Like, for example, I could see a scenario down the line, and we should be looking out for this, where Donald Trump makes some deal with Kim Jong-un in North Korea, where he says, we're going to withdraw or pare down U.S. troop presence in South Korea in exchange for you making some nuclear concessions. A lot of people who are up for the defense secretary job would not do that because they feel the U.S. presence in South Korea since the Korean War in the 50s is essential for U.S. you know, grand strategy in Asia. Trump doesn't believe in grand strategy. He wants a deal. He wants a win. And he doesn't want to pay a lot of money to have troops all over the world. And it's interesting, the the idea that the American people want troops over the world, Donald Trump might be right that um, maybe the voters are not going to be against this. Uh, people probably don't want a lot of troops in um, in Syria or Afghanistan. These these things are not um, strategically uh, strategic winners for the U.S. I, I agree. I think Donald Trump is in line with a lot of Americans um, in in stating his views on kind of paring down the U.S. presence overseas, focusing more on building at home. You know, this was a message that Barack Obama said in a lot of ways too, not in the way that Donald Trump has said it, but he also said we need to focus on rebuilding at home. We've expended too much energy overseas. Our allies can be free riders. So there is some continuity there. And Barack Obama also had his finger on the pulse of the American electorate. I think what, you know, being in D.C. right now, one thing I notice is there is an uproar, total uproar over this resignation of Jim Mattis and a lot of uh, freaking out. My guess is if I were to leave D.C. and go around the country, there wouldn't be as much about, you know, as much uproar about uh, Jim Mattis leaving and also about this decision to withdraw troops from Syria and also the decision to kind of cut in half U.S. troops in, in Afghanistan. I mean, we've been there 17 years. A lot of people will say, well, why are we still there? So I think Donald Trump politically, this is astute. It's a, Americans still want to, you know, be a, a I think that you look at the polling, Americans still want the United States to be a voice for freedom in the world. They want to um, promote American values. They still, you know, polling is actually pretty high for things like the NATO military alliance. But I think there is a lot of support for the fact that um, we have spent too much money overseas. We have lost sight of the direct national interest, and we need to regain focus on that. You've got an interesting article in The Atlantic by Russell Berman, and he quotes the former U.S. ambassador to Syria, Robert Ford, who was um, very supportive of the revolution in Syria while he was there. And he thinks that it was the, that, you know, basically from a distance, it's the right decision to pull the troops out of Syria because you can't fix all the problems they've been sent there to fix. And uh, you, uh, you know, the execution he faults, but um, he thinks that it's uh, probably, you know, uh, something that the U.S. was eventually going to have to do. Yeah, I think eventually we would have to withdraw. I mean, this was not going to be like a decade or longer, um, you know, engagement like the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq war. I think people did know that eventually this was going to come to an end. And we also had a very modest force there. We had about 2,000 troops. I do think, though, that there are a lot of people making, kind of, you know, logical arguments about why the U.S. troop presence should remain and why we shouldn't have a precipitous withdrawal. For example, uh, there are Kurdish fighters in Syria who have helped us fight ISIS. They are in, they are under threat from Turkey, which views them as a threat. They are kind of endangered. They're a minority in Syria. If we leave, they could really be under threat uh, more broadly, and we'd be abandoning allies who helped us in the fight against ISIS. More broadly, um, one, ISIS is the embers of ISIS are still there, even though the fire of ISIS is gone. And they're, they're, they're structurally, you know, in terms of their territorial hold on the country, they have lost a lot of territory. They are no longer the force they once were. But we've one lesson we've learned from the war in Iraq is that if you leave before the terrorist group has been completely defeated, it can regain strength. And so I think that's another concern. And more broadly, things that even John Bolton, the national security advisor, mentioned, and they lost out in this policy argument to Donald Trump this week, is that 
we are trying to contain Iran. We are trying to contain Russian influence in the Middle East, and to, we need to be part of Syria, have a U.S. troop presence in Syria to prevent Syria from being overrun by Iran and Russia. But I think that last argument is one that Donald Trump really does not agree with. He does not see the value in that. And even people like Nikki Haley have argued, you know, Russia and Iran destroyed Syria. They supported Assad. They destroyed Syria. They need to deal with the reconstruction. The U.S. does not shouldn't be footing the bill for the reconstruction of Syria. I did want to say something more about Afghanistan, where the U.S. troops will be cut in half. And this was... Um, James Mattis's baby when he came into office, he told Donald Trump, let's boost the troops a bit in Afghanistan because um, things aren't going well there. And things continue not to go well there. In fact, it's getting worse over the last two years. So um, it's, you know, Mattis didn't seem to have a prescription for success or a negotiated settlement in Afghanistan. And I'm not sure who does. That, that's really no one. You know what the answer is? No one has a really good answer to what to do in Afghanistan right now. That's why we've been there 17 years with no progress. Um, and I think, and I think, or, you know, little progress. Um, and I think that his strategy did not seem to win out. You know, he, he would have argued we need more time. There's more time to stabilize the country. But we shouldn't be particularly surprised by this announcement that Trump is planning to withdraw troops from Afghanistan. I mean, he said, even when he announced that they were going to surge troops in Afghanistan, he said, I did this against my instinct. This is not what I wanted to do. I was convinced. And I think he has he's had given it some time to to see how it pans out. And he hasn't been impressed by the results. You know, he's thought about privatizing the war. He's thought about all these different options. Um, and so far, nothing nothing has really worked. The one thing I'd say that, that does become problematic is we weren't really seeing success on the ground in Afghanistan. But what, what the Trump administration was doing was it was trying to actually do peace talks with the Taliban in Afghanistan. And it was, you know, it hadn't made a ton of progress there, but there were some promising signs that that might bear fruit. The challenge now is if you're going to withdraw troops, you withdraw the kind of military threat to the Taliban, the military pressure to the Taliban, and that might make it harder to actually pursue successful peace talks with the Taliban because they're not going to be in a position where they want to compromise in any way. So that is one piece of leverage, and Donald Trump always talks about leverage. That's one piece of leverage that they will lose by having the troops at this point. I wanted to ask you about the the shutdown and the shutdown over the wall that's going on there in Washington. And Donald Trump says the government will be closed for a very long time if he doesn't get what he wants. And the Democrats now own the shutdown, he said on Twitter this morning. Uh, Do you got any vibe about uh, what's going to happen here? We're going to go till next year with a government shutdown? Yeah, I think we're headed to a shutdown. I mean, listen... The last few days have indicated that there are surprises behind every door in Washington right now. So uh, who knows? Something There might be some miracle tonight. But it, the way I you know people I'm talking to, the things I'm seeing, I think we are headed for a shutdown. And right now we're headed to a, a question of who gets blamed for the shutdown, which is what often happens in this case. You know, Donald Trump initially said, I, I'll take responsibility for it because I want border security. Now he's saying, you know, if the Democrats in the Senate don't vote for this measure that would keep the government open and give about five and a half billion dollars for a wall, then it's the Democrats shutdown. They own it. Of course, the Democrats are saying the opposite. This is the Trump shutdown. But what this really is about is is about uh, Donald Trump prioritizing this border wall above a lot of other things and showing that he is willing to use hardball tactics with the Democrats, which just gives you a little taste of uh, what this is going to be like in the coming year with the Democrats, where we're not going to see a lot of, you know, working together very nicely on infrastructure projects and things like that. This is going to be hardball tactics. There's going to be a lot of government dysfunction, and it's only going to get more dysfunctional, I think, as the uh, Mueller investigation into um, possible ties between Trump and Russia uh, escalates. I think that'll only make things more dysfunctional. So I think this is a little bit of a preview of what's to come in the coming months. Uri Friedman writes about global affairs for The Atlantic. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the tumult in Washington. Thanks for having me on. Coming up after the break, film contributor Milo Stalik talks about the new film Vice about Dick Cheney. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. (laughs) 
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our film contributor, Milo Stalik, who is here to talk about one of the more anticipated films of the year, Adam McKay's Vice, about Dick Cheney. Nice to see you. Great to see you, Jerome. You know, big hype, big buildup, opens Christmas. Christian Bale, who plays Dick Cheney, very highly publicized. Adam McKay coming off The Big Short, which was kind of a big mainstream success, which explained the financial crisis to us, now takes on another big crisis, which is personified in one individual by the name of Dick Cheney. We've got a clip of the film, and in this clip, the narrator uh, talks a little bit about how Dick Cheney set himself up when he became vice president. Dick Cheney had used an old connection with former wrestling coach and Speaker of the House Dennis Haster to get an office at the House of Representatives. The House is where revenue bills originate. He wanted to be near the money faucet. Hey, Dick. Will this work for you? Two more offices in the Senate. Hey, Dick. I found this extra office. I hope it works for you. One in the Pentagon. Welcome to your new home away from home. I got you a little housewarming gift. And later, when Cheney needed intelligence to invade Iraq, a conference room at the CIA. This room is soundproof and secure. Cheney was everywhere. But the most powerful place in all of D.C. was a nondescript conference room, a relatively new think tank called Americans for Tax Reform. That's a clip from Vice, the new Adam McKay movie about Dick Cheney. How did you like it, Milos? Because that clip gives you an idea of the hard-driving narrator condensed thing that's going on. Well, there's a lot of things going on in this movie, and there's too many things going on in this movie, which creates a problem. I really wanted to like this film because it's a complex subject. Obviously, Cheney is an interesting character. That said... You know, you know that he's a creep when you start watching the film. You certainly know he's a creep going out, and not much has changed. Because the film really opens with his being a drunkard at the very beginning, rescued by his wife, Lynn Cheney, who later on became the chair of the National Endowment for the Humanities, uh, who gives him the ultimatum, either straighten up or I'm leaving. And so that is the psychological background that sets him off into this hard-driving quest for manipulation and seeing himself as the power behind the throne, of which this is an example, because he wants to have an office everywhere. He wants to be the eyes and the ears and the person who is pulling the levers behind the throne. One of the things about Dick Cheney, as the film talks about, you know, dour character who can make anything sound bland, even, even the most radical statements, and in a way that's a problem for the film. It, it, the central character is kind of so boring. Well, he is boring, and I think that the filmmaker, in an odd way, felt that, which is why they keep adding on all this shtick. These little bits of performance art, which is supposed to be kind of shtick from comedy, which is kind of out of place. Then this narration that bridges us over. Then all of this kind of voices that come from all sides. And this is all put together as kind of a pastiche, as kind of a collage, which then misses really important elements because the film really doesn't have much of an arc, a dramatic arc, other than when Cheney gets convinced to be vice president to uh, George W. Bush, whom he, of course, sees as naive and as somebody that he can really easily twist to his own power games. It's interesting that the film is trying to drive Cheney as kind of a, a singular character who was responsible for a lot of the things that went on during these years that he was in power. And it also is trying to put him in context with the movements at the time. And it goes into these short kind of mini documentaries about, you know, the tax organization there that we were going to hear about, Grover Norquist's organization. And, and it keeps bobbing out for 
all this contextualization. And I went back and forth in my own mind if that was working to actually contextualize things or just confuse the narrative a little bit. Well, it's a quest for creating context, and it doesn't really succeed because that context is all in very extremely abbreviated short form. It also has huge gaps, like the whole you know, contested election in Florida, for example, is quite absent. The whole way we got into Afghanistan and Iraq is kind of also short-ended because there are other elements or forces that uh, Adam McKay is trying to latch onto, which is to humanize Dick Cheney. So we are treated to a lots of quote-unquote ordinary human scenes like uh, Dick Cheney brushing his teeth, which lasts about a minute, about 59 seconds too long, in my (laughs) opinion, or the rather hilarious scene in retrospect, which just reads so weird when you're first watching it, which is uh, Lynn and Dick Cheney in bed reciting Shakespeare to each other, or kind of quasi-Shakespeare language which then leads to a very erotic interlude, the one single erotic interlude in the whole film. And it's not that erotic, I might as well, I can assure you. It was also interesting, he talks about Dick Cheney as being nice to his daughter who comes out as gay, and he tries to humanize him in that respect. And... Um, it didn't feel very human. <laughs> it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel very authentic, you know, because, of course, her sister didn't support the gay marriage bill. There's a lot of time spent, for example, having to do with Dick Cheney's heart, which ultimately, of course, is the heart transplant. And so we're treated to these kinds of dramatic scenes of Dick Cheney's heart, or fake heart, of course, sitting there on a platter. (laughs) Well, he is always having another heart attack in the film, which is true to real life. Uh, He becomes vice president, immediately has a heart attack. Nobody knew about it, but it was all true. That was all true. It it was all true, which doesn't mean that you have to watch it, you know, or that it's very interesting. It's sad to watch because it's a film, I'm sure, that was made with really the best of intentions, that It has really good performances, we must say, from Christian Bale as Dick Cheney, who ages very well throughout the whole film. It's kind of miraculous. He does a a great job with his posture. Everything is kind of a miracle. He really nails him. You know, Sam Rockwell as George W. Bush is pretty good, and Steve Carell as Donald Rumsfeld, the kind of the other dark, shadowy figure. (laughs) So when there was the recent funeral of George W. Bush in in Washington, there was a small article headline saying, the gang reconvened. Beans, and so in Washington for the funeral. So this is the gang that you're going to see enacted essentially in Vice. I don't think anybody is going to be bored watching this film. It may be an uneven kind of chaotic thing, but I think you're going to be entertained or engaged. Sometimes the comedy stuff is really funny and pretty good, but other times, you know, I don't know. It's a pretty long film. You know, it felt longer to me. I was certainly bored for long stretches of it. I just wish that it would just get on with it and get us someplace because it's so, you know, I think he tried to pack so much stuff in. And also, I really thought about it when I first saw it. I thought this is a case of a talented director who's coming there with a lot of ideas, obviously too many ideas, and everybody is just too afraid to say no to him and to push back. And that has happened before because some filmmakers really need someone to push back. A good example, an actual something that I know is Dushan Makaveyev. His best film was Montenegro when he had an excellent producer who kept saying to him, no, you cannot do that, just stop. And it resulted in his best, most coherent, most fun, uh, most energetic, most accessible film. And I really felt that there was nobody really taking on that role. They just thought they had a genius, a genius idea, a genius project, and it was going to take the world by storm. But the subject was, as Dick Cheney, I think, is emotionally and as a character really empty. Because somebody who is a manipulator is really empty emotionally inside. The film also doesn't seem to know how to end itself. And I do think that you come away from the film thinking what he wants you to think, which is that the people in the United States, they got what they deserved in Dick Cheney and the Cheney administration, that they took the bait 
which is a big thing in the film. He's, you know, his code name was always Angler, and he was always setting the bait and reeling people in. And he reeled in the country is the takeaway from the film for me. And I, I mean, it's kind of heavy-handed, and he does it in a lot of odd ways at the end. But, you know, he, you're going to get what he wants you to feel. Well, and he tries to also kind of reel in also not just be one-sided, so he doesn't want to be accused of being just somebody who goes out and lampoons Dick Cheney, which is the reason for all of this kind of humanizing elements of it. I mean, he takes on, for example, his uh, archival clip of Hillary Clinton uh, making that speech in support of uh, invading Iraq. You know, so he tries to create that kind of a sense of balance that it's not a film that's out to get Dick Cheney, but to give us this moment in time of how we kind of got where we were. Obviously, the things are much, much more complex. There's a lot more than what we see. And I will say that, at least for me, if you really were up to just marginally keeping up with the news during all of those years, you don't really learn much of anything new. The film is Vice, and it's by Adam McKay. It's opening in theaters today. I think I found it a little more interesting than you. I think I, I, you know, I wasn't bored, and it was kind of a mess, but it was something. Well, if you have nothing to do, take your in-laws. <laughs> <laughs> Milo Stalik, our film contributor, thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we'll have Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time, and we'll have a Persian take on the winter solstice, and we'll hear music of the Americas live in our studio. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. Our global citizen friend Nari Safavi is here. He is the co-founder of the Pasfarda Arts and Cultural Exchange. And Nari, it is great to see you. Uh, good day, Jerome. It's great to be here uh, today again. And uh, Yalda Mubarak to Yalda Mubarak to you and Yalda everyone Mubarak else. And- we're going to Persia. You're you are the Persian event this weekend, Nari. Uh, yeah, I have I have a, a Persian winter solstice event uh, organized with several friends and also in uh, in uh, cooperation with the Chopin Theater's hundredth anniversary going on this year. And you know, thank you to uh, Ziggy and Elila over there who are helping us out. Uh, this is going to be an interesting uh, thing going on this weekend. Uh, we are doing it as a bath form, which is a part of a sort of a lyrical gathering or celebration that the ancient Persians did. It was sort of like almost like a poetry and music exchange going on between everyone participating in the party. So this would be a good event for people who know poetry by heart. Exactly. We have it open. We don't. We, it's not the barrier between the performer and the audience disappears in these kinds of things, and people can come in and listen to the, what the professional musicians or the poets are reciting and doing, and they can respond to that in poetry or with music. It's sort of a re- conversation going on, a creative conversation going on, celebrating the winter solstice. That sounds like a tremendously fun, creative thing to do. I imagine you have your poem all teed up. I have my poem uh, all teed up, and I'm also going to be doing a little bit. You know, this is going on at the yaldabasm.com, and it's an Eventbrite uh, kind of thing. Yalda is Y-A-L-D-A. And uh, it's uh, and I have my poems, but there are going to be all kinds of great musicians participating. I think we have a sample of, uh, sample of Tompak music. That's going to be performed tonight. Let's hear it. (laughs) ¶¶ 
right. Nari. So people come slamming out of that with some Hafez and then some Robert exactly. Frost. Hafez, and then Rumi, Omar Khayyam, and all kinds of other things going on. There will be a lot of people who are uh, regular uh, participants in our broadcast, like Steve Burns from Fulcrum Point. Aaron Freeman is going to be there talking about Afro-Persian musicians. Ahmad Sadri is going to be there uh, talking about connections of Shabbat and Yalda performances. So it should be a great evening tonight. All right. The Yalda Winter Solstice Festival tonight at the Chopin Theater starting at 7 and running until you run out of poetry. Exactly. You're and, supposed and we to be never run out of poetry. Into the, uh, in this and just kind of poetry and Persian food and Persian cocktails, I should say, like saffron cocktails and Shiraz wine cocktails. And we are thrilled to have in the in the studio with us the music of the Americas Ensemble, and Ariel Garcia is here. He is the with on the viola today. Nice to see you. Thank you. Thank you for having us today. Now, the Music of the Americas Ensemble is a newish organization. Tell us about yourselves. Right. So, uh, the ensemble, the idea for the ensemble, actually started in Nebraska believe it or not. I did my master's at the university there, and I became really good friends with our flutist, uh, Dr. Nicali Salier, and uh, the violinist, Jose Escalona. And, you know, I grew up in Chicago playing classical music. I'm from the little village neighborhood, so um, I guess I grew up trying to figure out this identity of what it means to be a classical musician, but what it is also mean to be Mexican-American, how I could maybe unite the two. And what they did was they introduced me to this whole world of classical music written by composers of the Americas. So in 2016, we started playing around Chicago. And um, what we do, basically, I like this idea of uh, removing the barrier between audience and performers, because that's exactly what we do. All our our concerts are, um, we created a welcoming and an inclusive environment where we engage with the audience, Uh, we explain everything, you know, the life of the composer, what's going on in the music. Um, One of my favorite things to talk about is when to clap or not to clap and why or why not. (laughs) Thank Uh, you for doing that. Yeah. (laughs) Consistently confounded by that. Right. (laughs) And then uh, one thing that is unique to our formatting for concerts is that we're all bilingual, so we make it more inclusive because we engage with Spanish-speaking audiences. Fantastic. And you you formed and had uh, some concerts this summer. Uh, Well, the first concerts we had were in 2016. Um, and uh, we recently had a performance at uh, UNAM, which is uh, the Autonomous National University of Mexico. They have a satellite location here in Chicago. Great. But since our debut in 2016, we've performed at the National Museum of Mexican Art. We've performed at Tzilalin Gallery in Pilsen. Most recently, we've been doing a lot of uh, outreach performances at different schools in Chicago for um, wow. uh, Ravinia's El Sistema program. What are we going to hear first? Right. So the first piece we're going to hear is um, by a Venezuelan composer. Um, and it's uh, it's called uh, Fuga Criolla. And I think my colleague, Dr. Alie, was going to talk a little bit about that. Well, nice to meet you. Nice meeting you. And thank you for having us here. Um, the first piece we are going to play is called Fuga Criolla. It's a short piece and it's a fugue. It's developed in the way... We play joropos in Venezuela. The joropo is a kind of composition, is a genre in uh, Venezuelan tradition that is very rich. There are over maybe 180 different kinds of subgenres in the joropo yeah, world. <laughs> yes, it's, it's huge. It's like saying country music is so rich where things like that is very, very broad. So this is a joropo, and the fugue theme is a joropo, and the counter theme is a joropo, etc., etc. So there's there's the same juxtaposition of, of elements that you will find in any classical fugue, but based on uh, Venezuelan joropo that is related to the um, Spanish fandango. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. I look forward to hearing this. And it's great to have in the studio with us Music of the Americas Ensemble. Great to hear you guys. <laughs> Thank you. 
The Music of the Americas Ensemble, and a terrific uh, Venezuelan for you. Um, and uh, that was terrific. I'm going to want to hear all the Venezuelan fugues now. We're going to have to go through all 180 of them. That was lovely. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> no, this, uh, was, it's great to hear that, uh, that, you, I, that you are trying to connect your uh, skills as a classical musicians to a tradition, to a cultural tradition and heritage that you're coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, how is um, how is it working out? Are you finding much receptivity for yeah. the, in terms of the audience? Uh, you know, right? No, people seem to be very excited. Um, like I said earlier, we had done we recently performed at uh, Unam, and people were thrilled. Thrilled. Um, I think uh, I think people in general. Um, in my experience, you know, I've been doing this for a long time now, right? Um, and even I get uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable sometimes in classical music concerts. Yeah. A lot of unspoken rules, you know? And I think uh, removing a lot of that, like really making, connecting with people, engaging with the audiences is very important for us. It makes them feel comfortable and that way they can enjoy the music on a different level. Mm-hmm. Um, also, one of the things we're very interested in is in really developing the idea of diversity and inclusion in classical music. Right. The other day, I actually came across this headline that the Kansas City Ballet in their Nutcracker production, uh, uh, for the first time ever, is featuring uh, an African-American woman as the le- in the lead role, which is fantastic. It's something that we should celebrate. 
I think it's also an opportunity to think about how much more work we need to do in uh, diversity and inclusion. And if we think of arts organizations, imagining you know three groups of people, uh, leadership, performers, and audience. I think for the most part we've made progress as far as performers on stage, but as far as diversity and inclusion go, we need to make uh, even more progress with arts leadership, boards, staff, and audiences. And so one of the things we're doing with this group, you know, we decided to uh, take this opportunity and flush the idea out a little bit, and we're now in the middle of building a nonprofit organization called Music of the Americas Institute. And, you know, if you imagine a pie graph, you know, a large por uh, a pie graph representing the audiences that uh, go to classical music concerts. A large portion of that would be mostly Caucasian, older. A very small slice of that pie uh, is what makes up the, the minority demographic. And within that small slice, you have different slices of, uh, you know, different minority groups. And what we're focusing on with this organization is the... Um, Latino, Latino slice, that community. Um, because at the end of the day, what we're doing with this organization, our organization reflects a community that we're trying to serve at every level of leadership, board, staff, and teaching artists. If people want more information about the music of the America's Ensemble, go to your Facebook page? Yes, we have the Ensemble on Facebook. And coming in January, uh, you'll see information about our uh, the nonprofit organization, and we're going to start our fundraising campaign to launch our first summer music festival next summer. Ariel Garcia plays viola with the Music of the Americas Ensemble. Uh, congratulations on what you're doing. Let's hear another piece. We'll kind of play out of the show with this piece. Uh, what are we? What are we about to hear? Right. The next piece we're actually going to play uh, is by a Mexican composer named Eduardo Gamboa. It's uh, it's called Arrullo, and it's something of a mix between a serenade and a lullaby. Well, thanks very much for joining us, the Music of the Americas Ensemble, and you can find them on Facebook. And uh, this is my last show until next year. We're going to have some tape shows next week, and some of them will be really good ones. You can hear about uh, inequality with Jeffrey Winters next week and the year in inequality. Hope you can join us next week for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Viviana Garcia Blanco for production assistance this last six months. It is quitting time for Viviana Garcia Blanco, but uh, we know she will have a great future ahead of her and is one of the most affable, fun-loving people we've ever had as a production Viva Viviana. <laughs> Thanks uh, very much for joining us, and we'll play out with a little music of the Americas Ensemble. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience. I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts.